Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Bringing Design Closer. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a service designer and founder of This Is HCD and CEO of ThisIsDoing.com, where we provide live online design and innovation classes, providing training for service designers, design researchers, product managers, user experience designers, content designers, and much, much more. Today in the show is Panar Gavench, partner at Sour, an architectural and design firm based in Brooklyn, New York. And Sour is a play in the words of social and innovation. And their purpose is to responsibly use design to build a better future. We get into the what the role of architecture is and how it connects with services and how the discipline of architecture has evolved over the last few decades and how in reality the architects are caught between the money-hungry property developers and ultimately hold not only the purse strings but also much of the control in what is possible. We speak about accessibility in physical spaces and what needs to change in order for architects to deliver more inclusive experiences. It's a pretty free-flowing conversation and we cover quite a lot of ground in it, but let's get straight into the episode. Panarik Avench, a very warm welcome to Bringing Design Closer. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you, Jerry? I'm doing okay. We've just been catching up about life in New York and how things are going over there. But let's jump in. Tell our listeners a little bit more about what you do and where you're from. Well, I'm originally Turkish, but I was born in U.S. and kind of grew up in both countries and then ended up in New York City about 10 years ago. Currently, I'm the partner of uh, Sour, which is an architecture and design studio with the mission of addressing social and urban problems through architecture and design. Mm. And we have studios here in Brooklyn, New York, as well as Istanbul, but projects and various typologies and scales of things just across the world. So we like to get our hands into different things which calls for big, uh, diverse, collaborative teams. And we love that. Nice. I wear many different hats on my day to day, but like, I think we can get into those a little bit more later. As you were speaking about beforehand, but Sour, it's a play on social and urban design. And you just recently rebranded for anyone who, who do who has known the previous name. What was the name of the architect's firm before that? Eri Carvajal, yes. And then we did get a lot of exposure. We were lucky to have a lot of good PR around uh, the old firm name too. So it's kind of like, where did that firm go? It was a very abrupt change, but it did feel really right. I mean, it is a representation on our mission, but also we feel like it just better represents our attitude. I think we do have to get real as architects and designers and sort of stop sugarcoating and really do purposeful and problem-solving designs. So, Absolutely. And I mean, when I was Preparing for this interview, I was looking at Sarah's website and I was a little bit taken aback because there's stuff in there that would normally fall into the world 
most of the listeners will understand, like incorporating urban farming and greenscapes or promoting inclusive industries and environments, stuff that's all very common for service designers and people within organizational culture change. And you're working in a space that typically architects, I don't want to say it, but don't, I haven't seen them play very often in that space. Is that fair to say? It is fair to say, and it is sad to say so. I don't think this was the case. Like we were Mm. having a conversation with an environmental psychologist and she was saying like in 1970s, architectural psychology was a popular term. So like what happened to that? You know, like I think, or, you know, sustainability was always a case when architects were building so local and sourcing local and representing local cultures. I think there are a lot of factors in play. Number one, architects are really not in control of their own medium, right? So let's say they're working with a developer who is sort of overseen by the bank and can only maneuver in the amount of loan that the bank give them and they only give it in like certain conditions. So Mm. they don't want to take any risks or they don't want to do anything new or innovative. They just want to repeat what has worked before or so-called before. And then first there is those constraints that land on architects. And then there are constraints by other players like the engineers or any other consultants that are saying like, you can't do this, this won't work. I haven't built that before, so I don't know. So I I don't think it works. And so, yes, you're technically designing a building or you can be designing like any part of the built environment, but you're not the one building it. You're not the one overseeing it. You're not the one financing it. So you have no control over your design. And that is a huge problem. So, and I think, you know, another reason why we see architects so distanced is sort of in addition to all the, these like external factors that are going on about the profession is Mm -hmm. attitude. I'm more like, maybe it's easier for me to say because I came into the industry as an outsider, but really there has been culture of star architects for so long where, I mean, I love so many of the buildings. I think they're just whatever, but that also called for sort of distancing themselves from everything really. Mm. And then there are like wannabe star architects that sort of place themselves in their ivory towers and whatever they say is right. And their ego does not let them listen to any other surreal issues around them. And I think also similar to almost like the finance industry, like having your own language makes you sort of like, oh, like they're saying something smart or like that's very sophisticated. We don't know. Like, I think I'm not saying dumbing down the profession, but like making the language and the profession a little bit more accessible that I don't think architects have done. And that sort of led them. I don't want to say become irrelevant, but really distanced. Mm. And they're blamed like, oh, architects are becoming too commercially friendly. They're doing whatever developers tell them to do. But, well, like, they don't have the public fighting for them or advocating for them because the public don't even understand the built environment, nor they understand architecture because it's such a, they position themselves in such a high level category. They definitely held a lot of social kind of clout. And, you know, they're up there with the lawyers and those kind of in on that echelon of, of societal power. Yeah. And I think, you know, like, to say, like, you're an architect, it's like, ooh, it's, it's very kind of, it's, it's got I mean, a lot, a lot of social status. out of the profession, obviously, but you don't have to lose touch. And do you think that's the case? Has architecture lost touch? 
I think so. And that's why we see, and, you know, COVID-19 is a good example, like our built environment failed us and continues to fail us, whether it's mm-hmm. like our environmental factors, whether it's like in public health. I don't think, you know, architects, like the things we also advocated for when we had the space were not necessarily the things that were either right for the public or the environment. It was more mm-hmm. our own egos and our own says. And like, I think that door should be at that angle because it looks nicer like that. Like, I think the battles, we already get such a few battles to pick working under such constraints. So I don't think we picked the right battles and a lot of things come into play in addition to all these like external factors, but our own ego and like thinking positioning ourselves in such a high level to only distance ourselves to everything that is real and relevant. Mm. And, you know, which is also like, yes, architecture itself is a very collaborative profession, but we need to get outside of the sort of the traditional collaborations that are with, you know, you have environmental consultants or engineers, but I think we have to, get more outside of that like let's say you're designing a hospital you have to have nurses and doctors in the conversation every day not a focus group study not a survey not a one-point touch but you have to have them in the process you have to have patients in the process you have to involve all stakeholders throughout or like why aren't we collaborating with material scientists more what are we Mm. why aren't we collaborating with psychologists more like i think we have to get a little bit more outside of our own comfort zone in so many ways to be able to ensure that not only you're addressing the issues today through built environment, but also creating future proof concepts. So you're not building a building and five years later it's irrelevant or it's even like hurting the environment. Yeah. Like creating environmental spaces that are able to adapt based on the needs. And like, as you can see at the moment, the pandemic has, has required us to shift how we move and how we actually behave. A lot of the, the buildings that I'm familiar with now in Dublin or in Sydney, yeah, a lot of them are very rigid structures and they're very, they're not ability to adapt to the new needs, shall we speak. So how do you see the profession of architecture evolve to become better at that? I think one issue is that anything in our built environment always followed other innovations right it's sort Mm. of like there were no cars oh now there are cars okay then let's allocate a parking space in the building Mm. so it always followed innovation it never participated in it which is why one issue we have with that is we're seeing very standardized buildings across the world right like it's great to have personal cultures in spaces that you go to But if you're a frequent traveler, if you go to hotels and if you care about like access and see like what they're doing that are accessible in the building, you will always see it's very standardized because we don't try to innovate or collaborate to try to innovate. Architects and designers point of view and innovation is not only just good, but crucial, but Mm. we don't participate in that part, but we only like catch up later oh, this is like the new trend now, so let's adapt this. So you will only follow. You will only be a follower and your space will become irrelevant if that's Mm. the case. We've been like, especially post-COVID, I think it sort of reminded all of us that we need to rethink what we've done throughout 20th century, really, in cities. And cities like New York, especially New York City, that are very dense and but also thrive on their social life, 
when that stripped away, suddenly the city became a meaningless space, right? Like, why would you want to be in such a dense concrete environment and there is no one there is no Broadway shows there is no museums that you can go to like parks are closed everything is closed so and you we saw a lot of people moving out Hmm. and I think it was such a hype around it that you can't even like see well this style is not sustainable like all these high rises like how is this going to work like the commute coming into the city is that even like environmental friendly So we really need to, I think, focus on how, and it's not easy and it takes a huge team, right? It has to be a very collaborative approach with very many different disciplines Mm. in order to be able to really understand what might a city call for? What might a neighborhood call for? What might a future library look like or a like retail branch of a bank would look like? Is there even one? You know, like all these things, I think, we really have to just reassess and, you know, to be real, like you can't, especially as a young firm or like a growing firm where you want to just like survive also, right? Like not all architects come from like a lot of money. Some do, which helps in financing your yeah. years, but you may have to do projects that helps you pay the bills. That's fine. Yeah. But then what are you doing? What are you self-commissioning to yourself to make sure you're also using your skill set in order to be able to do something meaningful. I yeah. think that is really, that helped a little bit like opening our eyes during COVID. I hope that doesn't go away. I think creatives became more open to collaborate, which was nice to see. Mm. But I also really hope that it continues because otherwise, like we've been talking to many developers that, you know, manage or build office buildings or shopping malls. Like, what are you doing? Like, what, what, yeah, what are they doing right now? And what did they say? They're like, oh, you know, like, obviously we take temperatures when people come in and then we give them a kit that includes like hand sanitizers and masks. And then we did like plastic partitioning in spaces. Some said we're going to place cameras that will collect binary information on the amount of people in a room to monitor physical distancing. So I'm listening to this, like, I'm like, why would anybody want to work from the office then? Like, if it's such an inhumane experience, that is not good on mental health. Why would anybody want to go in there? So clearly everything that you're suggesting, maybe like the state or a city requires you to do that. So you do it like a, you're putting out fires because that's what the regulation calls for. But clearly, exactly. It's just symptom treatment, but clearly that's not sustainable. That's not going to work. So what are you doing on the other hand to be able to like find or innovate around like Whenever we have issues, that's a platform for innovation, right? That's when innovation is sparked. So what are we doing to rethink spaces really and make Mm. sure it works sustainably? Like it's the reality that we're going to have hybrid spaces. It's the reality that the office spaces are going to be more like ideation sessions or, okay, let's have a strategy meeting. Like when you need other people for work, you would go into the office, but maybe if you're going to like look at your emails all all day or process some information, you can work from home and it's totally fine. We should have been at that flexibility always anyway. But even people, you know, when you do work internationally, like some people are even like, oh, we're having a Zoom meeting. It's not in person. And we're like, well, you're in Middle East. We're in New York. So I mean, flying here. Travel (laughs) to Middle East always. So now everybody's using Zoom. Like why wasn't this the case anyway? Yeah, we usually need something like that to really kind of nudge and push us over the line 
And we definitely had that. I just want to state, like you mentioned post-COVID a few times, we're still in that status. We're still in that position, definitely in Europe anyway. And I know in Australia, I'm part of it. So I'm not sure yeah. what oh. it's like in New York at the moment. I know they were massively hit. There was in the news a lot a couple of months ago. So maybe just tell us, like, how is New York doing at the moment? New York being yeah. the one hit hardest in the United States. I think they were still very cautious. I'm hearing from like other projects or friends in uh, Europe, uh, UK, like cities, I would say like are back to 80% normal where in New York City, if you go into Manhattan, mm. you wouldn't recognize it. There's no one. Retail is opening, but there's no indoors yeah. experience really. Where there is, you're limited to one hour. The city did a good job in like closing off many streets to cars so that restaurants could open up, like yeah. expand onto yeah. the streets, which looks very nice. Like this in that sense, it's like a festival like feel, but there's like museums. They haven't opened yet. They're planning mm. to open September and onwards, but not all of them. No shows, no concerts, no events whatsoever. So in that sense, I think, you know, New York is a very resilient yeah. city and it's been through a lot of issues, but not having people was not one of them. So I've never seen New York like this. And it's really interesting to see now people actually like Queens and Brooklyn better because the scale is more humane and it's more spacious. There's more green, mm. there are more parks, there's more space in general than Manhattan. And seeing how people are vacating Manhattan is, uh, it's really sad. You know, it's such a high level energy city that I've, you know, I've never experienced New York like this. And, and surely that's having a, a knock on effect to the property, you know, the values of, of buildings and, and so forth. It has to, though. It has to drop. I think landlords mm. are very unrealistic and they're just used to at like charging everything as so high. It's even crazy. Like so many, there was a lockdown. No retail businesses were able to practice their business. Yet they had to pay yeah. rent every month. So why, I mean, if you like, if, you know, looking at this, yes, let's say I mm -hmm. pay rent for my apartment because I reside in it, even if I decide to work from home, even if I decide to just lay at home, whatever I'm doing, yeah. it's just my personal space. And I, okay, I'm responsible for that. But when you're signing a lease as a business, your contract is a business contract. Like it's for your business. So if your business is unable to perform, to me, that contract should be invalid. Yeah. Like there's no business anymore. So what are you paying off of anyway? But I guess like, you know, the landlords will, will say, well, we're paying taxes every month. So then you're looking also up to the city and state and federal government. So what are you doing about that? So there is no prescription or solution or recommendation really than just giving out these like minor yeah. small business grants throughout this time. Whereas the reality is, oh, no one's performing business. Well, they shouldn't be paying a business lease then. And also landlords, if they're not getting any income, maybe they shouldn't pay taxes these months. No, like, it has a huge it's not that straightforward, right? So, yeah, ab absolutely. Like I know in Ireland, struggling. house prices tripled over in about a, about a month, a month and a half. I remember saying to my wife, like, oh, like, you know. Really? You're dreaming, having your breakfast, and you're kind of like, oh, no, maybe. Like, if you're working from home, and I'm working always from home anyway, so maybe like maybe we don't need to be in dublin as much like you know maybe there's an option there and then you look at the papers like 300 percent more expensive down in west cork and cork and go away and all these places like, well okay so what does that mean to our house prices and it just has one of these knock-on effects where 
suddenly it's not that important to be yeah. in the city anymore and it's not that important to be based to you know to, to all the headquarters of all these buildings because everyone is just working remotely like there's no one in dublin really going into the office that i know of anyway so it's all changed yeah I mean, having only that also, like, I mean, I know there are mm. so many people that always work remote, but obviously there's a level of energy Absolutely. that you it's get huge. from like human interaction, yeah. right? like, which is undeniable. Yeah. But we have to recognize it's yeah. not necessary every day. So that pressure on commute, like you losing hours, like so many people are, are like, I'm working way more efficiently without the commute, which obviously if you have like an on computer, like work that you need to get to, of course you will finish that up because you're not spending two hours on the road. But if you had, it's like an event or any speaking engagement, whatever, like if you have a workshop, if you have like mm. a big strategy meeting, like those things, you do want to be around people, but that does that call for our headquarters? Yeah. Like, do you really need that? Or are we? looking yeah. to like decentralized offices so you have like almost like the local coffee shop like working from coffee shop feel but mm. with your teammates so i think there's a lot of things that we need to think around like yes i mean we're human we're social beings so that Absolutely. part of it is not going to go away so we can't just go to the extreme saying oh no. it's all going to be remote from now on that's not people want. People can't wait to get out of their homes where they hacked so that there's no children's sounds or whatever. Like they want to be out. Mothers are torn because they never had to face like the mom guilt and mm. manage school, like remote school from home and manage work. Like we're actually, we took on a lot of projects that relates to sort of, I, I'm saying post COVID, mm. but it's like current COVID and like what might happen in the future post COVID that addresses. Well, first of all, Addresses issues. So the results actually come in in different forms. It's not necessarily in architecture. Like we wanted to look into two subjects. One was seeing all these like very inhumane rushed design ideas that magazines publish as if these are going to be, that's also, I think one problem of the industry, like anything about architecture, they can publish without questioning. Well, you know, is like, Oh, the most innovative, like home of whatever. And then you're looking at, and it's not even innovative so you're seeing these like plexiglass sitting in a plexiglass at a restaurant suggestions that you know big brand design magazines publish as if it's like the most innovative idea it was very frustrating to see that which is why like we never said anything we never published anything we we're like okay we're actually gonna do this right we're gonna actually go into heavy research on all of this so we were obsessed with the idea of like why are we even concerned about elevator buttons or doorknobs or whatever at mm. this point? Like it's 2020. So we started to collaborate with a North Carolina State University that has a very robust lab that developed an antimicrobial material that is actually more effective, lasts longer in its capability and has other properties to it too that could be useful in product or interior space design. So we started to collaborate with them. And initially our approach was like, okay, how can we mm. intervene into our like, built environment with material innovation? But we quickly realized like a lot of the issues also stem from human behavior, right? Which is why this, whatever you're asking, it has yeah. to be human centered, right? Because it's other, like, we're, we're in the core of, every innovation, every problem, everything happening in the world. Like if we're talking about climate change, that's also because of mm. human behavior or actions in the past. So 
then we like, as we were looking into it, well, first of all, one of the most effective things that stops spreading a virus is yes, wearing a mask, right? But we also saw there are a lot of errors around wearing a mask, how you take Absolutely. off a mask, how you put on a mask. So even I recognize with myself that I take it off like this, which is the worst way to do it, apparently, Absolutely. because that's where all the microbes accumulate as you're walking around. And people take off their gloves wrong. Like there's a lot about human behavior and around human psychology on whether, why, or why mm. you don't want to wear a mask because you feel like you can't breathe. It's very antisocial. You don't understand what the other person is saying. So many factors. So we were like, well, I mean, we can do all the intervention and innovation around our environment, but it is very likely that we're going to be required to wear a mask for the next how many years. And the real innovation is actually required with the masks. So if we don't inter like if we don't think about that, it's not going to mean anything. If we're doing like antimicrobial doorknobs, we can just do, you know, hands-free access to entire buildings maybe. But still the way you wear a mask, if you're wearing a mask, that's going to be relevant, whatever you do into your built environment. So it evolved, like we got into it, thinking it was going to be something in our built environment. And then it turned into sort of, I don't want to say just a mask, but also a system that helps you wear a mask because the most immunocompromised crowds that are among people with disabilities and elderlies, they can't even wear masks by themselves sometimes. Mm. It's not accessible without a caregiver. So yeah. we that's why I'm saying a system. We've de developed a concept of involving a few more technology companies. Absolutely. It's re really interesting because like when you go out and about in the cities, especially in Dublin at the moment, and obviously I can't check this in, in London and other cities, but I'm pretty sure it's a standard. When you go to traffic lights and the traffic lights yeah. require you to press the button, I've noticed behavior. My behavior changed straight away. I'm, I'm kicking the hell out of that button with my foot. I'm not touching with it. And like I've become like a ballerina. <laughs> I can lift my leg up in slow motion and tap it twice, you know, and so forth and bring it back down with grace. But if architects were responsible for that design pattern, what's changed in your process now to make sure that you're not repeating the same behaviors? I think it's just, it has to be exposure, right? I think it's very, even like for architect, for any profession, for people, it's so easy to fall into your mm. own habits or patterns right? Like it's so easy. And there's a thing called confirmation bias. Let's say you think about something and then you come across this somehow validates what you're thinking and you sort of, oh yeah, so I'm going to do that. So it's very, hmm. if you're in your own world, it's really easy to yeah. fall into your own patterns and it's really hard hmm. to change or see that you need to change. So unless you expose yourself to diverse backgrounds, diverse disciplines, have conversations in many different topics that may yeah. relate and everything relates to built environment, everything. And if you don't do those, it's really hard to think like sort of assess and analyze the way you're approaching things. You, we learn from different disciplines, like one common practice in healthcare might be a very innovative process for architecture, but you're never going to think of that if you're not talking to health professionals. But, but also, like with the the traffic light, the, that button pattern of using that and repeating it around the city, it's hugely inaccessible, and it's it shows a, a lack of inclusivity in the design process yeah. because people who got mobility issues or are wheelchair bound, they're not able to do what I'm doing and you know kick the hell out of that button. They're forced to touch that with their hand. 
And by default, that's that's just discriminatory. It's not actually, it's not just, and it's not ethically fair. So what I'm really keen to understand about is you mentioned at the very start there, you, you've got multidisciplinary people within the organization now within Sour. Walk me through what kind of disciplines are in that organization. Okay, so for example, right now we're working on an urban design project mm. in Istanbul and the team for the project that we put together includes anywhere from a, yeah. well, first of all, locals, right, in the environment, their experience, to, in different age groups, by the way, to inclusive design experts that also include people with disabilities among them, to... I want to say, I mean, engineers, like these are like very common disciplines, Uh, psychologists to circular design experts. So you can't do everything on your own. I mean, you can aspire to be a big corporate company to hire all these people, but I don't want to be one of those companies. I'd rather stay lean and do like cool things, but you have to bring the team Mm. together for projects because the information you get from them already allows you to be Mm. 50% ahead of the game, right? Like, and it's not about that either, but like really approaching a solution for the underlying reasons of why we're facing such issues. You know, if you hadn't told me that, let's say there's a big statistic in Ireland about unemployment for people with disabilities. Yeah. And that's just a fact. But if we maybe dig in deeper into that issue and why that's the case, maybe one of the reasons we're going to find is that, well, they can't access easily or have their commute easily or transportation easily throughout the country. So they're nervous about even going into interview or they can't go to an interview is inaccessible. So they don't apply for jobs. Like that can be one Mm -hmm. of the reasons why we see that number. So seeing those numbers or just like talking about the surface issues does not Mm -hmm. help. We really need to reframe the question and the challenge and really understand the underlying reasons of why that issue is happening. That doesn't happen unless you bring in different people. I think like we have historians in the team. I think one thing that misses in architecture world, which should be in our everyday conversations is talking to psychologists Mm. and historians, right? Like we really need to understand our history well which we don't like, and, you know, and then we're looking at things like, Oh, like black lives matter or whatever. Like the, you know, if we had knowledge of history, the way we treated even this pandemic would be way different because there was, there were pandemics in the world before, but we didn't have it in our living memory. So like, it's really important to bring those know-hows into your own practice so that really it forces you to first of all have this like Hmm. conscious about your project this like responsibility is already instilled like if you knew something was detrimental to a city Hmm. in its history you're not going to repeat that but sometimes we just don't know we're ignorant about it and you know we do so many expert interviews and ideation sessions with progress makers and i've think I'm trying to be a very exposed person and I educate myself and I read a lot. I still yeah. believe in wow so many times like, I that mean, I didn't know. Uh, anthropology is, is a huge one for architecture to, to become closer with the understanding. Like you mentioned about psychologists and, and historians, but anthropology is, is a discipline there that within itself that will be hugely powerful to the process as well as, as well as integrating better yeah. with service yeah. design. And I know the discipline of service design is probably just still kind of 
the grassroots in America in, in a lot of sense, but how those buildings interact with the system of the ecosystem of the business, they are representations of the business and how it integrates with the service that they're trying to provide is, is hugely powerful. And yeah. I guess that's where at the very start when I, when I was chatting about architecture being quite elusive and it hasn't been typically something that I've encountered too often, service designers inherit these buildings, inherit these these structures that are so rigid and they kind of almost inform the process that we that we fight so long to and struggle with and try to adapt and rebuild. And I feel like, oh if only we could rebuild the building in, in some senses. Like integrating at that level of of kind of zoom, if you want, to perform what we want to try and do from a holistic perspective is something that I'm always championing. And it's something yeah. that I've never really had the opportunity to I guess, converse about this kind of stuff because architects, when I've approached them and said, hey, doesn't I love to chat to you about some of this stuff? They've shied away from some of the conversations and maybe it's because of me, but it's also like, I guess I felt the profession of architects have just been in that position where it's, they're only a part of the process at the very start and then they walk away. They're not part of the process historically for, for a long term. Yeah, which is very, it's mind boggling. I don't know. Like, and we talked about some of the reasons how that mm. might have happened and how we got there, but we do, we can change how we approach things. And again, like repeating, yes, maybe you have to do some projects that whatever, like you don't think it's doing, making any change in the world, or if, it, you're, if they're not PR wordy, so you don't want to talk about them, whatever that is. But we are creative people. Like, I think the blessing of designers is that you have the skill set that allows everything to be accessible and really like allows a communication medium that is so powerful. It's visual, right? It's physical. So you have these skill sets as an architect. So you can take on own projects. You can do competitions. You can do things that where you feel passionate and you think it has to change. I think we need to sort of get out of the way of like doing traditional architecture business, but really start functioning more like an incubator and see mm. how we might generate ideas that could help us for the long run and will yeah. help cities so, and social well, I've got one matters. final question because I don't come, come close to time, but this appetite of change and the, the willingness to collaborate from an architecture's perspective, are you seeing that level of willingness at the developer level, at the bank level? at the, the government level and what what can we do both as architects and designers or just change makers what can we do more in the next say five years to try and bring them closer to answer your first question definitely no we don't see that collaboration and we talked about like architects being distanced they're even further distanced from the reality yeah. like developers seek profit banks yeah i mean they're banks um, so and the government is sometimes very out of touch with so many things that by putting out zoning regulations or building mm. codes initially for good reasons, then they, because they're not updated so frequently, nor they're responsive, they become very irrelevant and restricting for cities. So we think, how do you do like, so the top down system is not working clearly. So how do you do this bottom up? And typically it has to be more grassroots and like starts mm. with like smaller companies, right? So we often say there is no solution to any problem without educating the end user, right? So if the end user, let's say I'm wearing this, and if I knew that this actually was 
produced in a very sustainable way. It was a fair trade. People were treated well, paid well when making this. I would feel good about it, right? And I would purchase it and I would wear it. But if I'm very ignorant about this entire cruelty system that exists in the fashion industry, I will just buy whatever is cheap. I will not worry about my consumption levels, how it's polluting the environment, nor how children mm-hmm. are dying produce, producing them for you. So you become the reason why that problem continues to exist by yeah. ignorantly making that purchase, right? So we start to see in other industries, whereas in food or fashion, where this became more and more of a conversation, but still, and because some of the reasons that we talked about and how architects speak in such a high yeah. level language that is not accessible, people don't understand built environment, nor they connect to it, which is ironic because it's designed for them, right? Like you don't see a tenant or a person who's going to buy a house going, oh, what type of materials was used in the space? Can I see the material passport of this building? What were the people paid? Is this sourced locally? Like these questions are not asked. It's yeah. like, does it get sunlight? Does it have a balcony? You know, does the building have an elevator? Like I've never seen a person being so inquisitive about the space that they're buying in terms of environmental and social reasons, right? So this has to change. I think some without like being worried that it's going to dumb down the profession. Architects really need to talk to public, speak publicly, speak in collaborative and diverse disciplines so that people understand buildings and what they need to do Mm. and how they need to change better. And so there is demand. If you build the demand and if people think, I'm not buying, this is not a high-end residential nothing. Like it's built like shit. Like I'm not buying from this. Like if people start saying that developers are going to have to be accountable for delivering a product that is actually sustainable, actually inclusive, actually responsive. So Mm. it is a very long-term solution, but how I see this can like change for the better, like sustainably, this is the only way we have to collectively be responsible and take ownership of our surroundings and really call for better products you know, in general. I had a whole kind of like finish to this conversation. That was pretty much, you've covered off a lot of the main points, but like if we can do that, if we can, if we can sort of hold these people accountable for these poor decisions and poor outputs and outcomes, then it's going to help move the dial forward. So Panara Gavinch, thanks so much for your time today. If people want to reach out to you, how, how do they do that? Well, they can follow us on Instagram. We're at what is sour. They can go on our website, sour.studio. They can also listen to our podcast, which has expert interviews and the ideation sessions that we do with progress makers. It's called What's Wrong With, which is the starting question. It will not be a very nice podcast like this, but it will be very informative. We'll promise that. So yeah, they can follow all of those. We'll throw links to those in the show notes. So Panara, great chat with you. Such a pleasure, Jerry. Thank you so much for having me. So there you have it. That's all for this episode of Bringing Design Closer. If you like this episode, feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design, product management, design research, and much, much more. If you're interested in design and innovation training, feel free to check out our business, thisisdoing.com, where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders. Join the This Is HCD newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network. And also, if you're interested, apply to join the Slack community on thisishcd.com. 
Stay safe and until next time, take care.